Is the crown finally flopping? Jonathan Price talks protocol on the monarchy and Elizabeth Debicki reveals the key to playing Princess Diana. I'm Jack Royston, Newsweek's chief royal correspondent, and this is Newsweek's Royal Report. Hello, listeners, and welcome to the show. The Crown has debuted its first four episodes of its final season, and I caught up with some of the cast ahead of release. So I'll play those interviews shortly. But before I do, I just want to talk a little bit about how this season's gone down so far, because it's not matching up to the runaway success of past seasons, I don't think. So just to warn everyone, there are spoilers in this episode. Um, So the biggest moments in part one are obviously a matter of historic record. You know, the biggest moments you're not probably going to be surprised about. Some people may even have lived through them. Um, But needless to say, there are some spoilers. So going back to the reception that it's got so far, The Guardian gave part one just one star and the reviews have been mixed. Uh, There's also another really interesting barometer for assessing its success, which is the Google searches, because usually the crown creates these avalanche of Google searches. You know, people watch it, and while they're watching, they sit there on their phones, and they Google which bits are real, which bits are fiction, and they try and find out what the show got right and what the show got wrong. So we usually see in the Google search data how well it's performed. In its first week, though, for this season, it's only part one, part two is coming, but for the first week of this season, generated just 13% of the search traffic that season four generated back in 2020. Now, that was a particularly successful season, but also, I mean, this one, it's done less well than 2022 than uh, season five did last year. So it's not performing as well by that metric. Uh, Now, maybe people are just simply taking longer to wake up to the fact that it's out, uh, but The weekend didn't seem to rectify the situation or do it any favours, basically. Um, Part of this might be down to the fact that this is the third instalment, effectively, of Princess Diana's story. And we've also had Kristen Stewart's portrayal in Spencer, and there's been Diana the Musical. Um, So people might just simply feel like they know this story inside out already and have maybe had as much of it as they want. Um, In which case, part two comes out in December and it could do better because it's got the relationship between Prince William and Kate Middleton which can maybe breathe new life into it. Um, In the meantime though, I must admit that I found part one quite difficult to watch due to one specific plotline which is about Mohammed Al-Fayed. So for anyone who doesn't know Mohammed Al-Fayed is like this really big tycoon who owned uh, a big famous British department store called Harrods as well as Fulham Football Club, a big soccer club called Fulham. Uh, More significantly, though, his son Dodie was Diana's boyfriend at the time that she died, and they actually both died in the car crash in 1997. Um, Now, I was lucky enough to interview some of the cast, and I'll play those interviews in just a minute. Um, But, uh, you know, I put my reservations to Khaled Abdallah, who plays Dodie, and I'll play his response, but it was heartbreaking. And while I think I would maintain my criticisms of the show, it did definitely make me view, made me think about the whole thing through slightly different eyes. Um, so, like I said, I'll play that shortly. Uh, but first of all, here's my reservations. So, Mohammed Al-Fayed died in August, so really recently, and The Crown couldn't have known that when the script was written, Peter Morgan couldn't have known that. Filming began last year, long before that happened, but needless to say, um, his death was really recent, and they went in very hard on him. 
every scene up until Diana and Dodie die is pretty much uh, pretty much that he's in has him manipulating events to try to push Dodie into a relationship with Diana. And the reason the show gives is because he wants Mohammed Al Fayed wants British citizenship and he thinks this is going to help him get it. Now bear in mind that Diana was the most desired woman in the world. There's no real attempt to kind of show Dodie being in you know infatuated with her or like captured by her there's no kind of balancing viewpoint that maybe Muhammad Al-Fayed might also have genuinely thought that she was a catch or a great you know a great suitor for his son um and I've spoken to people who are friends with him who, who say you know he could be a schemer um, there may be an element of truth to the characterization, and he did apply for British citizenship twice. However, it's just so one-sided, you know, it's such a hatchet job that I found it very difficult to watch. And I couldn't help noticing that Mohammed Al-Fayed is, you know, he's a character who's outside the monarchy. The Daily Mail complained bitterly the last two years or three years about the way that the collapse of Diana and Charles's marriage was portrayed. But in reality, that had way more balance because... The Crown left out some of the some of Diana's most scandalous allegations, including, for example, that Philip gave Charles permission to cheat on her. Uh, that never appeared anywhere in the show. So obviously they were going to have to deal with some of the negativity and some of the allegations against Charles. And sure enough, they included some really awkward and embarrassing stuff. But they also left out some really awkward and embarrassing stuff. And they showed a human side to Charles. So it was a rounded, balanced portrayal. You can't ignore like massive, massive things that everybody knows happened in the 1990s. There was no way they were ever going to be able to ignore that stuff. So Mohammed Al Fayed, there's just very little balance. You know, there's very little recognition that they might be wrong. You know, that there might have been more going on, that he might have genuinely wanted what he viewed as the best for Dodie. Um, he after after all, you know, he liked Diana. Um, so he's shown calling the paps on Diana and Dodie. And since then, Piers Morgan has come out and spoken about this. Now, he is not necessarily everybody's cup of tea, I'm well aware, but he was the editor of the Daily Mirror at the time, and the Daily Mirror broke this story. And he says it was Diana who tipped off the photographer um, to get a set of pictures of them kissing on Mohammed Al Fayed's yacht, the Jonacle. Um, but also, more to the point, Morgan says he called Mohammed El Fayed, and far from you know being the one to make this these pictures happen, Mohammed um, El Fayed in fact uh, tried to deny it, and um, it, you know so far from basically giving the story, he tried to kill the story. You know he tried to by denying it that was trying to kind of stop the story from happening. And it was only when Morgan said that they would run it anyway because they had proof that he basically backed down and confirmed it. So that seems to be a very direct, you know, uh, refuting of the narrative that's in the crown. And again, you know, I could, I could absolutely, you know, it is fiction, it's drama, it's not fact. But the question is, is it fair? And is it balanced? And so that is the issue for me. It's not that they can't have a go at Mohammed Al-Fayed. It's not that they can't be in any way critical. It's not that they have to portray him as an angel. But it has to be balanced and fair in the same way that they were balanced and fair to Charles. But I was, like I said, I was also kind of blown away by the way that Khalid Abdallah responded when I said to him, you know, is this a bit mean? Uh, because he clearly wanted to do justice to the memory of both Dodi and Mohammed Al-Fayed. Um, but he also said, how many Arabic characters are there in Western cinema who die and then are mourned? Which Dodi is, you know, he's mourned in the show. Um, so here is what he had to say. Now you play a 
character um, in the show who the public know much less about. You know, all most of the characters in the crown are hugely well known to everybody, mm. but Dodie will be a blank canvas for a lot of people coming to the series. Mm. Um, and it's also a very interesting depiction because Dodie is shown uh, initially not, you know, not being drawn to, not necessarily wanting one of the most desired women <laughs> in the world, and being pushed into it by his father. Was that yeah. difficult to play? Yeah, I mean. I mean, the whole thing has been an immense challenge and a great honor. Um, you know, I mean, there's a benefit and, you know, it goes both ways. I think, you know, if it's a character who is well-known, there's benefits that come to you as an actor. There's more material, there's more footage, there's more, you know, more that maybe shimmers immediately for people because of, you know, and then if it's a character who's less known, it's something else. You know, it's like a discovery. And uh, I think in both cases, there are, there are benefits. For me, um, beyond that particular kind of acting challenge, there's the sort of, there's the cultural responsibility that hangs on, that hangs on the portrayal. Um, you know, as you say, um, he's lesser known. And, you know, Dodie is a figure who despite the fact that for the last 26 years he's been on supermarket shelves everywhere and in the public gaze, in the background, people have known almost nothing about him. And I think there are deep cultural questions around why. Mm. And, well, that's and, alluded to, isn't it, in the and, series itself? Well, yeah, we, exactly, and we get there. And so one of the things I'm proudest of is that finally, after 26 years, we get to know him a little, we get to love him a little, and then finally, when he dies, we can, after 26 years, we can finally mourn him. How did you feel about the way that Muhammad al-Fatbad is characterised? Because if, did it feel at, at, at times like maybe it's a little bit mean to him? No, no I mean, well, one of the things that I feel is so important and was important for me right from the beginning about that dynamic, right? Because many people have complicated relationships with their parents, and clearly Dodie did. But it was so important to both me and Celine that that was a relationship of love, you know, of deep, deep love. And in some ways, the harder, the more loving, you know, it's sort of like it, the contrast sort of deepens that sense of, of extraordinary love, which was absolutely there. Um, and, I, and that's something that, you know, me and Salim, I think, very much had our eye on the whole way through because Tippett one way and it becomes something else. Uh, you know, Muhammad al-Fayed died recently and the phrase that went round my head again and again as I contemplated it was just, you know, I hope that my performance and what we've done together is the greatest condolence I could have given. Um, and the, the show draws that comparison between the different way that the media treated Diana versus Dodie, basically focusing almost entirely on Diana. Well, yeah, fine, exactly. Finally, finally, that exists. And as I say, that's, I think that's incredibly resonant in the world that, we, that we're living in. I mean, I, it hit me under the current circumstances, and I asked myself the question suddenly, and I'd never asked myself this question. I was like, how many Arab characters in cinema on this side of the world can I think of who have been known a little, loved a little, and when they die, mourned, mm. right? Despite the, yeah. number, despite the number who have died and been killed in wars and otherwise over my lifetime, let alone my father's and my grandfather's. And, you know, this is one of 
this is one of the, it's not the first, but it's one of the first, you know, it's one of them and, and a very deep one. And it's one of the things that for me also gives me this strange kind of debt of gratitude also to Diana. Because I, I feel that her gaze towards people was always one that was really about the light inside them rather than their status or the color of their skin or whatever it was. And mm. somehow that carries through all the way to here, you know? And I think it's part of the reason she was so loved across the world. And I think that's, you know, part of what is being affirmed here. It's not, it's not a point of comparison, right? It's that everyone has, everyone has a right to be mourned. And in some way, that sense of common humanity and love. Um, yeah, it makes me very proud to be part of this season. And there's, a, there's another parallel, I think, that the show creates, which is between Mohammed and Carol Middleton, um, who both push their children into... Uh, <laughs> I hadn't I clocked that I one. I don't know if you've... <laughs> well, because Carol pushes... Um, she pushes Kate very hard to, to meet William. Uh, to right. try and put Kate in the same room as William. And I just wondered whether you thought that maybe there was a bit of a, a, another kind of injustice in the way that perhaps uh, Carol is not seen with, through the, you know, in the same I can't, way. That I, can't, I can't really comment on that kind of thing, but I mean, in relation to her, but I don't, but I think, you know, in general, the crown explores the tension between family love and personal love. You know, going all the way back to the abdication through Charles and Camilla and Diana and, you know, and Margaret and all of it, it's, 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 it's not, it's a, it's a refrain that repeats itself. And I think it's a refrain that repeats itself in all of our lives, right? Um, uh, and sometimes it manifests like that in terms of the pressure and excitement over the idea that, you know, there might be some it's some reflection on you and your parenting, what you hope for their child, for your child and, and how that becomes a responsibility or not or whatever it is and how they then relate to it. Um, but I think, you know, and this goes to something that I think Peter has, Peter has said many times that I love, which is that in this arena of the crown, what, what, what's possible to explore is intergenerational relationships, you know, because of the scope. That's very hard to do in films that in the scope of a series, you can get these intergenerational shapes that, you know, there's a, there's a phrase that's, a, that's said about history that I love, which is, you know, history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. Right, right. You know, right, and there's a lot of that yeah. rhyming that is happening in general across the crown. Mm. Now, it's been said, obviously, some, uh, some details of the show uh, clearly were leaked at some point to the mail, and they got very upset about this uh, idea that you know some of Mohammed Al-Fayed's theories about uh, you know conspiracy theories about what might have happened made it into the crown. Do you feel that the show did justice, both you know to, the, to everybody's memory in this? That's the, the that's the you know I, I've always said that I don't think our responsibility is is to answer questions is to ask them as intensely as possible, right? And you get that when you, when you represent a reality that isn't delivering itself retrospectively, right? It is, you're exploring it in a sense how they explored it. 
And that means you get to, with Diana and Dodie, you get to sort of go, okay, well, there's this dynamic about those decisions. Is that what caused it? Oh, there's this dynamic around, uh, you know, the, the paparazzi, or there's this dynamic around the driver, and there's this dynamic around the timing, and, you know, all these things which there's no answer there. But amidst that, there is also realities that tether you, right? You know that this happened in this way, and, and you know, we explore that in incredible detail, you know, detail that maybe only we will see. I found that interview quite powerful, to be honest, because it clearly mattered so much to him to do justice to um, to Dodie's memory and also to Mohamed Al-Fayed's memory. And he was saying he was proud of the role. Um, but he's right that this you know, this does pass as a relatively humanising portrayal of an Arabic character compared to what else is out there. But it's also just such a relentless hatchet job. So it, it just feels kind of heartbreaking and tragic to me that if you are an Arabic person watching Western cinema, this is kind of what you're what you have to cling to. So, you know, something, I think, for the whole, uh, whole industry to think about there. Um, and on that note, I'm going to take a quick break. But before I do, don't forget to rate and review The Royal Report on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your favourite shows. When I'm back, I spoke to Jonathan Price, who plays Prince Philip, about Royal Protocol. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Hi, everybody, and welcome back to the show. Now, Royal Protocol has been such a key framing for so much of Harry and Meghan's story, from the argument over whether Harry blindsided the Queen in January 2020 when he stuck his exit plans on a new Sussex Royal website without getting them signed off, to all the arguments about whether the Sussexes should have commented on the US presidential election in the first year of their post-Royal lives. Um, and there are references to this kind of general theme and subject um, in The Crown, including, you know, the Queen tells Tony Blair, who was Prime Minister at the time in 1997, that half-in-half-out wouldn't work for Diana. Now, obviously, you know, the half-in-half-out system is what Harry and Meghan were pushing for when they had their own royal exit. Um, So I asked Jonathan Price, who plays Prince Phillips, what he made of it all and what he made of royal tradition and the royal rule book. Now, obviously, I should just say protocol. It's a very specific thing, and those who work in the palace will always say there's way less protocol than people realise but I think colloquially, you know, externally, outside of the palace, like what we mean when we talk about protocol is just generally like the rules that constrain the royals in how they function, many of which are in fact not necessarily formally written down officially, but still count colloquially as protocol. Now, here is what Jonathan Price had to say. 
you played Prince Philip very soon after he passed away, um, and you must have done some of these scenes either before or shortly after the Queen passed away. Yeah. Um, the, how was that for you? That must have been felt like a huge weight of responsibility. Um, Philip's uh, death. Um, I, I have to be honest with you. That it was. Uh, I mean, I was. I had a, a normal uh, emotional reaction to his passing, but my first thought was uh, because I was playing him and bringing to the forefront things that people didn't know about him. He was this enigmatic character uh, who was always, you know, three foot behind the Queen and very much in the background. And his, his death meant people were, he was going to be right in the forefront of people's consciousness and they were going to know so much more about him uh, than they had before and I, did, I didn't know whether that was going to make my job more difficult or less difficult um, but seeing um, just talk, talking rather selfishly but seeing um, film of the family's reaction to his death and seeing the interviews with his grandchildren and with Charles and with Anne uh, it was, it gave me a lot of confidence in how I was thinking about Philip in that he was, he was a grandfather figure to the family. And, um, and as such, he was, a, he was the, a mentor to many of them. He was a mentor to Diana, we know. Um, and that uh, seeing their reactions uh, supported what I felt about I was gonna be doing or, or was doing as, uh, as the character. Um, now, in, in some on. moments in season six, he, uh, it's his job to kind of be the bad guy, right? In, in the sense that he is the voice that's saying Diana shouldn't get the kind of royal repatriation because she'd lost her HRH. Um, how, how did that feel for you? Um, it's always good to play the villain, <laughs> whatever it is, whether it's Prince Philip or High Sparrow or um, Carver in the Bond films. Um, so those moments um, I, I enjoyed uh, as an actor, um, knowing that it, it, uh, that wasn't the, the popular view. Um, and it, you know, I'd, I'd, there were times, it, I have to look at him not as a real person, but as a character that's uh, on the page created by Peter Morgan. So I'm telling Peter Morgan's truth. Um, so it was, uh, I, th I think, because I, I did feel, I was quite angry with the royal family in there, uh, as, a, as me, uh, when Diana died, uh, as were many people throughout the UK, that they didn't have the right response to her death. And to portray those things that he, he, they were basing it on, not that they didn't have an emotional reaction, but they were basing their reactions on protocol. This is what we have to do. She can't, because she's not HRH, she cannot be seen to be afforded these privileges, um, setting, you know, precedent. Um, and that's interesting to discover that about the royal family. I mean, without protocol and without precedent, they couldn't exist. Um, and they, were, they had to live by the rules. Uh, so does that sound like you've changed your mind? About? 
Looking the, back at that past when they were heavily criticised and you felt at the time that that criticism was fair, but do you feel now that you're looking at them through different eyes and perhaps maybe there was something in what they... In the past they well, it, it, it certainly inform, it informs how you um, think about them, yes, definitely. Um, so I was, I was happy to, um, to be made aware of the, those facts, shall we say, mm. yeah. And uh, Philip's relationship with Princess Diana was obviously a big part of the last season, um, and perhaps less so this season. Um, but do you feel, it's obviously very complex in terms of that, that mentoring role yeah. uh, you talked about. Did you, do you feel that Philip's role with Diana kind of transitioned from male mentor to something slightly more hostile? Well, yeah, because she didn't, she didn't take my advice, um, <laughs> or didn't take his advice. Uh, so the, yeah, I think he, you know, he, as a character on a page, he, you could say he uh, he felt let down by uh, by the way she uh, behaved. Um, but you know, it's uh, she was let down by Charles, uh, as we see in the series. Um, but that that mentor figure um, happily continues through his relationship with. Uh, the, her sons with uh, William and Harry, uh, which you see a lot of in the, certainly the second half of um, six, a little more anyway. in terms of In terms of Harry's journey now, I mean, the kind of the positioning of that sort of traditional old school royal approach that Philip represents within the crown has taken a bit of you know, some public criticism. Mm. Um, do you kind of feel like protective of Philip and his uh, what he symbolises within the show? That kind of old school royal royal uh, traditional thing. Do you do you feel that way when you see the kind of some of the public discussions that are happening about the monarchy as it stands today? Well, I, um, I don't. I honestly don't have the strong feelings about that. Um, I do. I think. Uh, you know, it is uh, a series of events, recent events with Harry and with William, uh, being a series of unfortunate events, should we say. Um, and they're played out against the background of this protocol. Um, you know, you, you see it with, uh, it's not just with Diana, it's with Andrew, who's, uh, you know, he's not allowed certain things. He's, he's stepped beyond the bounds of protocol. Um, he can't have the house that he wants to live in because he's not this, that, and the other. Um, I think it's, it's a way that they've found to exist, to say that, that if they have rules, if you bend the rules, where is it going to stop? And it'll stop with the disintegration of the royal family. I mean, they exist because of their uh, protocol, their established protocol, um, you know. And even as much as protocol is, in its essence, rules, it feels in the crown like Philip, or acts substantially on in instinct as well. I don't know if that's how you... Uh, say again, he, he does what? That Philip acts on instinct. We always see the Queen kind of very, con you know, in detail considering her decisions, whereas Philip, you always, he has a guttural reaction. Yeah, well, that, that's certainly Peter Morgan's view, that he's, uh, he's more in touch with his emotions, in a way. Um, and does behave instinctively, uh, which in the past had led to you know, him saying the wrong thing at the wrong time. But um, I think he's, he's a very wise figure and um, 
that was his role within the family, was to, to, to be thinking on the front foot. I found that very interesting. And I thought it was I also thought it was interesting to hear how much you like playing Elliot Carver and Bond because I actually loved Tomorrow Never Dies and it will always be the role that I associate with most. I am not for what it's worth a fan of Game of Thrones. I don't necessarily hate it, but it didn't pull me in. Uh, I think I watched like one episode and that was it. I'm not a Game of Thrones fan. But I'm going to take one more quick break before I do. A reminder to follow me on Twitter or X, as it's now called. I'm at Jack underscore Royston. You will find all my latest stories for Newsweek. When I'm back, Elizabeth Debicki told me how she brought to life what, for me, is one of the all-time best portrayals of Princess Diana. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. There's something magical about unboxing. When you unbox BritBox, you uncover a world of British entertainment. Stream the UK's most brilliant series, including new and upcoming seasons of Shetland, Father Brown and Death in Paradise. Plus new originals like Payback, Irving Welsh's Crime and Archie, the story of Hollywood's greatest leading man, Cary Grant. Unbox BritBox and escape to the best of British TV. Stream with a free trial at BritBox.com. Hi everyone and welcome back to the show. Elizabeth Debicki played Princess Diana in season five of The Crown, picking up the mantle from Emma Corrin, who uh, who's kind of started the ball rolling in season four. Uh, now for me, I think Debicki has done a better job possibly than anyone who's played Princess Diana that I've seen. And I think a lot of her brilliance is in the mannerisms and the head movement, the way she kind of dips her head, but also the speech, you know, the way that she speaks as Diana is just uncannily accurate. So I asked her how she managed to nail the role so convincingly, and here is what she had to say. You have come to this role, right, playing Diana, you know, enacting everything that happened then, right, as Charles and Camilla are kind of having their happy ending in the present now. And you've also seen, from season five into season six, you've seen the Queen pass away and the release of Spare. I mean, how has all of that felt to you? <laughs> well... I uh, have always been very clear about what my job is in this and in that um, it's, a, it's a, an incredible part that got offered to me uh, and that Peter has written an amazing, for me, two seasons. For me as an audience, amazing six seasons of television because I watched it first. So, um, you know, I think you would have to ask Peter because obviously he's a sort of captain of our ship. So I'm sure all the information and the way the world events have swirled around the making of the show have informed a lot. But for me, I mean, I'm going back in time to things that, you know, happened before all this, this current landscape was active. So I just, yeah, I sort of go back into the past in a way. Yeah, and do you feel under the spotlight? Season five obviously got huge amounts of press reaction. Um, did you almost did it kind of feel like you were living a small portion of what Diana went through? No, you know, I'm going to be honest and say no. I mean, like, I, um, no. I've been very fortunate in a way doing this job. I, I've, I, I've worked really hard and I've 
loved it. It's been an enormous challenge, but but it hasn't sort of, if anything, it's probably made me more um, sort of protect my privacy more maybe and, and like, and really uh, value my uh, quote unquote act, non-acting normal, normal life. Mm. So yeah, I think that maybe it's helped me make that distinction even clearer. What do you think was the most important thing for you in bringing Diana to life convincingly? I think the most important thing, uh, well, I'll say one of the areas that I've always focused on and found a huge amount of sort of joy and like creative joy and personal joy is the relationship with her children. That to me was always the center. That's the tent pole. It's also the times that I feel um, the happiest on set. I feel the most connected to the scene. I feel the most supported. You know, I quite literally, when the kids aren't on set, I feel quite bereft. I've always felt quite bereft. And whenever they're, you know, sometimes you have a half day where, you know, they're coming in the afternoon. And, and I always just thought, like, when are the kids here? I just wanted to, to be with them. And that they made me feel whole in, in a way. And they make me feel more her. And, and I, and they're just, they're glorious to work opposite. And I've, I've been so blessed to all the, the kids that have been cast in this have just been the most sublime actors, little actors. And that, that to me is the, is the kind of key, I think. And it's also the place that I've been happiest playing her. Yeah. And thinking about Harry and William, the real people, have they been a useful lens for you to understand that? I think, you know, again, it's sort of, it, for me, it was always, the research was always archival. It was always about what was going on then. I wasn't going to ever project into the future. And I think the research that was available to me in terms of um, an enormous archive of video footage and obviously it's media, journalism, and, and uh, the relationship between them was very well documented. Uh, I would watch hours and hours of footage of, of them together and what I would see there was just this pure, very easy, beautiful, um, extremely nurturing relationship that seemed that they needed each other so equally. And, and so that, inform- that, was, that was the information that I, that I used. And there's, yeah, there's, there's ample amounts of that. And I really, I really watched a lot of it. It's felt sometimes recently that Diana is almost a bit, of a bit of a battleground between Harry and William. Did you ever feel like you were almost kind of, in, in the way that you create her, you were almost being put into the middle of this, uh, this kind of transatlantic argument between two brothers who obviously both feel very strongly? No, because when I play, when I play the character, the children are getting along very well. <laughs> so, no, I never feel like that. No, I, I think... You know, they the the way the the actors play them in in my interactions with them is just they play they play them beautifully like brothers who are you know fighting over this or that and and um, yeah but they're they're I think I hope what comes across in season six too is that there there's a sort of just like a little trio of love between them and and uh, and I think from what I picked up from my research too it was so incredibly important for the real Diana to sort of really try and make um, what was an, inc- an extremely unusual set of circumstances, duties, responsibilities for children to endure to try and make them feel 
um, at times just as regular as possible and do things that kids want to do, go to the cinema, go to the store, go on vacation, you know. And, and I think um, there's also a lot of evidence and footage for us to know that the, the attention um, that they received was difficult for her to sort of stomach, that that was part and parcel for, for them. And um, there's a lot of, you know, there's, a, there's famous, the famous skiing footage where she goes right up to the paparazzi and she sort of says, would you leave us alone and could you give us some time? And I think we know, we all know, there's enough doc, you know, documentation of the fact that there was often a trying to um, engage in a relationship with the media that was respectful, where, where a, a, a sort of organised photograph was taken and then privacy would be um, given. But that was obviously very difficult for the media to sort of keep their word. Um, and that, I, and that we know is difficult for her, so yeah. And that's it for this episode of The Royal Report. Be sure to join me every week when I visit the latest royal headlines, embark on some royal deep dives and riff on all things royal. Until next time, I'm Jack Royston. Thanks for listening, everyone, and a curtsy to you all.